Good evening. It's good to see everybody. Everybody doing good? Staying nice and warm? And I'm going to go back to Eastern Europe. It's warmer there than it is here. So, man, oh man. Good to see everybody. I guess I might need to reintroduce myself. I'm the pastor. So, uh, it's been a while. So, it's been about four weeks. But we are glad that you're here. We are delighted to be back. And uh, we so miss this church. This is our favorite church on the planet. And we're so glad to be back with you. And Serve Jesus with you, the best people in the world. And so we are back to First Peter tonight. First Peter chapter 4 took a break for Christmas, and then we were gone for a couple of weeks uh, to, uh, to Romania. So anyway, it's good to, good to study God's Word together with you. Let's pray together, and we'll get started back. Father, we thank you tonight for your love for us, and thank you for the opportunity to study your Word together. Your Word is life. It is God-breathed, uh, Lord, every time we open it and study it together, it's you speaking to us, and I pray that you'll speak to our heart tonight in a special way about persecution, and I just pray, God, that you give us insight in what we need to know as believers here in America and here in Garland tonight. Thank you for those joining us online, different places, in various locations. Pray you'll bless them tonight as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we're to chapter 4, verses 14 to 19 of 1 Peter, and we will wrap up the end of January. So we have a, a few more weeks coming up, but the last Wednesday in January, we will wrap up uh, chapter 5 and then go on to another study in the Old Testament. And so tonight, we're looking, uh, and since it's been a while, kind of catch you up again into how we got here and kind of recap to where we are. You might remember 1 Peter written by the disciple of the Lord, Peter himself, uh, to a group of Gentile Christians living on the Black Sea in Asia Minor around 63 A.D. If you remember, persecution is about to get in earnest for these Gentile believers living on the Black Sea. So far, up to this point, up to 63 A.D., persecution as a believer was limited. Uh, it was mostly discrimination of some type, kind of what we face here in America. We're not really targeted, maybe by some groups, but I mean, it's not to the point of, of we fear for our lives, we fear walking in the door, coming to a public building, uh, things like that. They didn't either at this point. Uh, but within one year, things are about to get intensely worse for the believers there uh, on the Black Sea. So Peter's trying to prepare them, prepare them for it. So tonight's is primarily what he has to say about persecution. Now remember, just as a, as a recap also, suspicion and accusations and misunderstanding about Christianity all through the Roman Empire during this time period as he's writing. They were misunderstood. They were called cannibals because they ate the Lord's Supper. Well, the outside world didn't understand that. They thought you're drinking blood, you're eating flesh, and so they're cannibals. And Christians were accused of cannibalism. They were accused of sexual orgies because they had fellowships called love feasts. They were accused of being anti-family because our first loyalty is to Jesus. Uh, they were accused of being unpatriotic to the Roman Empire. They were accused of atheism because they rejected the Roman gods. They were accused of incest because they called each other brothers and sisters. Even husbands and wives were known as brothers and sisters, and so they were accused of incest. Uh, they were accused of being anti-business, anti-community, because they encouraged people not to buy idols, because that was worshiping idols as opposed to the Lord. So Christians were accused of a lot of things in the Roman Empire weren't true, 
but there was a lot of misunderstandings about the Christian faith. So, in the following year, 64 AD, Nero, the emperor, is about to ratchet up the persecution of believers. He would set fire to Rome. He would blame the fire on the Christians, saying the gods are angry because they're not being worshipped by the Christians. And so the fire was started by them, and so he begins to persecute Christians severely. I mean to the point of burning them at the stake, beheading them. He uh, beheaded Paul, he killed Peter, uh, he pitted them against wild animals. He, of course, dipped them in the oil, set them on fire for his garden parties. And so it's about, within one year, it's about to get very uh, intense. So Peter's writing and trying to prepare this group. How do you prepare a group to go from persecution of kind of what we're facing to all of a sudden being beheaded for your faith? Can you imagine within one year tonight, if things got so bad in our country, we would start being beheaded, burned at the stake, killed for our faith? Boy, that would go from zero to 60 pretty quickly, wouldn't it? So that's what he's dealing with. So starting in 412, chapter 4, verse 12, begins a section where Peter tries to prepare those believers for the intense persecution that is about to come. Let me read 12 and 13. We'll pick up in 14. Verse 12, chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, not if, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now let me stop there. We'll get to chapter 14 in just a moment. Before I do, let me talk just a moment because all of tonight's is about Christian persecution, pers believers being persecuted for their faith. <clears throat> Let's talk about, just for a moment, persecution of believers in America and persecution of believers around the world. First of all, are we persecuted for our faith in America. Some would say yes, some would say, yeah, probably not. Um, six in ten Christians, by the way, today in America say, yes, we're persecuted for our faith. Six in ten. Uh, mostly our persecution involves probably politics, uh, maybe political policies uh, that are developed that are maybe anti-Christian in some way. College campuses, I think, are definitely Christian, are, are definitely uh, discriminated against. Christian faith is public schools. Uh, many, uh, I think, are, there's pub, probably persecution to some degree. Public schools, um, not all, but some. Public buildings, perhaps. Uh, our traditions, Christmas and Easter, Christian symbols, the cross, uh, Christian holidays. Perhaps we are discriminated against as believers. Maybe you saw uh, today. Uh, the uh, NBC apologized because on the football game Saturday, whenever the winning quarterback, C.J. Stroud of the Texans, said, I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they edited that out and cut that out whenever they went to his interview and today apologized for it. Those types of persecution uh, that we face, uh, are we on the path like the first century church in America, to more intense persecution? Maybe. Experts say, yes, we are. 
Uh, they give several reasons for that. Uh, one of them uh, reasons is because they say there are fewer Christians in our culture than there used to be. And there are. The numbers keep going down of Americans who claim to be born-again believers. The number keeps reducing, and more faiths keep getting adding adherence. So because of that, just that fact alone, some people say, since there are fewer Christians in our country and more from other faiths, we most likely, as we go along, will face more intense persecution than we, than we do right now. Uh, some want to see Christianity reduced in our culture. Um, this pressure from our culture against Christianity in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, we are the oppressors, and so therefore it's okay to oppress us. And that, that belief's out there in our culture. I don't, that doesn't surprise you, I know. So because of those factors, it's possible that we in, in face more intense persecution than, uh, than we're facing right now. Also, it's interesting to note, those people from other countries who are being persecuted for their faith who are coming to America for safe harbor are not finding safe harbor as much here as previously. So those that come to our country just because they're being persecuted for Christianity aren't quite welcomed as they used to be welcomed. So because of those factors, a lot of experts say, yes, it's possible we as believers tonight can face more intense persecution in the days ahead than we face today. Let's talk just a little bit before we go to this passage tonight because it relates to it. What about Christian persecution around the world? Many countries tonight around the world persecute Christianity in some form. Most Christians around the world are under some type of surveillance all the time, whether it's by the government. Uh, even in Romania, when we were there, we were under surveillance. Uh, at the secret police are in every church in Romania. You don't know who they are. They're there. Uh, so our services were watched online all the time by a lot of people, and not just worshipers. Uh, and we knew that. And so, really, anywhere in the world, Christians are going to be under some type of surveillance by somebody. Many Christians tonight live in levels of high, intense persecution. In fact, the latest numbers, which came out in 2024, just a week ago, say that 365 million Christians tonight worldwide live under uh, high, live in an area of high persecution or intense persecution. 365 million believers. One out of every seven Christians worldwide live in a place that, intent, that persecutes Christianity highly. Not just some, but highly. One in seven. Think about that. Every seven Christians, count off, one of those tonight live in a place where it's hard to be a Christian because you're persecuted so much. In Africa, it's one in five Christians because the epicenter of Christian persecution and violence is the sub-Saharan area. A lot of the African countries, Middle East, where most of the persecution takes place. What type of persecution do believers face worldwide? Well, it's against individuals, uh, primarily. Sometimes churches are persecuted. 
Christian schools are under persecution. Christian buildings are. Even Christian cemeteries will be desecrated worldwide. Uh, Christian businesses are attacked worldwide uh, as well. What are some of the most common types of persecution against Christians worldwide? Well, there's physical attacks. Uh, there are beatings, abductions. Many believers are abducted. About 4,000 believers a year are abducted uh, worldwide. Sometimes they're found, sometimes they're not. Um, arrest. A lot of Christians are arrested in a lot of different countries. They're imprisoned. Uh, a more common type is that your assets are frozen. If you have a bank account, your bank account's frozen. If you're a Christian, you can't get access to your funds. Uh, your utilities are often frozen. Water, uh, electricity, heat, uh, air conditioning, some things like that. Sometimes those are frozen just because you're a follower of Jesus. If you renounce your faith, they turn them back on. They, they give your assets back in the bank. There's a lot of psychological abuse that is occurring worldwide against believers. Rape and sexual assaults are very high uh, worldwide. Uh, Christian women are by far the most persecuted. If you're a woman and you're a Christian in a lot of countries, you have a hard road. <clears throat> and so there's a lot of sexual assaults that are being conducted uh, in, in other countries. But also death. 5,000 Christians a year are killed just for their faith. 4,000 of those 5,000 in one country, Nigeria. Nigeria, by far and away, the country that kills Christians the most. Maybe you read, uh, maybe you haven't, Christmas Eve of this year, just a couple of weeks ago, um, in villages throughout Nigeria, uh, Islam extremists started at 10 o'clock at night on Christmas Eve, going village to village. Uh, if you're a believer, they would kill you. Uh, they went into churches that were having midnight mass services or midnight services for Christmas Eve. Uh, they started killing. It continued until 6 o'clock the next morning, all through Christmas night, uh, Christmas morning, uh, Christmas Eve night, Christmas morning. Uh, and, and many believers killed for their faith, husband and wife killed. A lot of believers were killed uh, in, in Nigeria a couple of, uh, couple of weeks ago. And in the last 10 years in Nigeria, 50,000 Christians have been killed in 10 years in Nigeria. 50,000. That's incredible. So most of the deaths, for, because you're a believer, are occurring in, in one country, and that is Nigeria. But many other abductions taking place. Uh, last year, 278,000 Christians were forced to leave their home and go into hiding. 278,000 worldwide. Now listen to this statistic. More Christians have been killed uh, since 1900 worldwide than the first 1800 centuries combined. Think about that. See, we think in our minds the early church and, and the, the, the biblical days in the first century or two, boy, they killed Christians right and left. And they did, but there have been more kills since 1900 to today than the first 1800 combined. So there's a lot of death still for the Christian faith. Who are the persecutors? Four groups. By far and away, the most common, Islam. Folks, it is not a peaceful religion. Say what you want, listen to whatever you want, 
It's not a peaceful religion. Uh, Islamic extremists are by far and away the most common persecutors of Christians worldwide. But there are other three groups, governments, some governments do, the weak governments primarily are the ones uh, that, that persecute or allow Christians to be persecuted. Communism is another uh, uh, persecutor of believers in China, in Laos, and Vietnam primarily, but communism, but also organized crime. Uh, organized crime in a lot of locations and corruption uh, persecutes Christians as well. Top 10 countries where it's the most difficult to be a Christian. Number 10, Afghanistan, by the way, which is number one a couple of years ago. It's dropped to number 10 now. Afghanistan and India, pretty well neck and neck. Number nine is Iran. Number eight, Sudan. Number seven, Pakistan. Number six, Nigeria. You'd think it would be higher on the list since all those deaths are there. It's actually number six. Number five, Yemen is the most, uh, fifth most dangerous place to live out your faith. Number four, Eritrea. Number three, Libya. Number two, Somalia. And of course, uh, for 17 of the last 18 years, number one on the list has been North Korea. Obviously, you would expect that. So that's just kind of a summary of persecution of the Christian faith worldwide because Peter starts talking about persecution and your faith being persecuted. So keep America in mind, keep where we are in mind, keep where they were in mind, keep where they were going in mind, and keep the rest of the world in mind as, as we read our passages tonight. So letter B on your outline, let's look at verses 14 to 19, the time that we have left. Blessed through suffering, letter B on your outline. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Now, suffering, Peter said, is one way of showing that you're God's, that you're God's child, that he has approved of you, that we identify with him. And I know, I, I come from America as well, I, I'm going, Lord, is there, are there other ways we can identify with you and you be proud of us and your glory rest upon us other than going through persecution? Well, there are. But if you suffer for his name, if you're insulted for his name, he says you're blessed. Jesus said the same thing. Blessed are you in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew. Blessed are you when people revile you and insult you for my name's sake. Rejoice! Because your reward's great in heaven. I think tonight, if our persecution were to go from zero to 60, I don't think there'd be much rejoicing, do you? A lot of complaining. I'm not certain there'd be a lot of rejoicing. But he says, rejoice because you are blessed. Now, our suffering, as I mentioned in the U.S., for being a Christian, is pretty subtle right now. But whenever we are, we feel persecuted or against, what's our response? We get mad. Now, they do that to Christians. They don't do that to every other group. We get, we get, well, we, we need to change government. We need to vote different. We need to, and we start going through all of this of, if we feel persecuted in any way, we get angry. And Peter said, Rejoice. Because their curses against you become blessings through the Holy Spirit. 
Whenever the Holy Spirit indwells you and He is sanctifying us and your persecution is the first part of your glorification, He said. So we don't praise God for suffering, but we praise God in suffering. When Israel was tested in the wilderness, they enjoyed the presence of God because he is with those who are tested. He are, he's with those who suffer for his name's sake. He is with you in a special way. Now, where, where we live, we're tempted to think, oh, we're blessed if we don't have to suffer. I hear people say that. Oh, we're so blessed here, we don't have to suffer. Peter said the opposite. He said, you're blessed if you do have to suffer. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not all fired up about it either. But we're not blessed if we don't, the Bible says. It says you're blessed if you, if you suffer. Warren Wearsby says about this passage, suffering Christians do not have to wait for heaven to experience glory. They get to experience it now. This explains, Wearsby says, how martyrs could sing praises to God while bound in the midst of blazing fires. And it also explains how persecuted Christians could go to prison, go to death, and never complain and never resist. How do you do that? Because you believe verse 14. You believe that when you're persecuted, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. On the other hand, he says, we do not take comfort in the suffering we bring upon ourselves. Sometimes Christians bring suffering upon themselves and they say, oh, I'm being persecuted for being a Christian. No, they're just being a jerk. But it's not because of Christ. It's because of their actions. There's a difference. And God's not fooled that he doesn't know the difference. So don't try to bring persecute on yourself, persecution on yourself, so you can have the spirit of glory rest on you and be blessed by God. No, that's not how it works. He says, don't, not, not all suffering that comes our way is because we're living godly in Christ Jesus. Not all suffering is the will of God. Some of it is brought on by us. Peter was very specific, did you notice, with his wording. By the way, he says, if you suffer for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Boy, that got specific in a hurry, didn't it? Did that happen? Was that happening in the church there on the Black Sea of those Gentile believers? Did somebody actually commit murder and then claim to be being persecuted for Christ's sake? Maybe. Or did somebody actually steal something and then they caught them at it and they, oh, but you're persecuting me for being a Christian. No, it's because you're a thief. Did that happen? But then he went to evildoer and then he went to gossiper. 
There's a big difference between a murderer and a gossiper, isn't there? But he, but he seemed to be very specific about the accusations he brought. So a lot of Christians, a lot of, a lot of uh, commentators believe that Peter was addressing something that had happened in the church. Somebody actually killed somebody and claimed to be being persecuted for it. And stolen. And a gossiper and claimed, oh, I'm being persecuted for being a Christian. And Peter said, if that's your case, you're God doesn't bless you for that. You're, you're being persecuted for your, own, for your own sins, not because of what somebody else did. But look at verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's talk about a couple of things in verse 16. First of all, I find it interesting that he uses the word Christian. Why is that unusual? Because it's not mentioned in the Bible that much. Did you know that? The word Christian only appears three times in the Bible. Here's one of them. Now, look at the progression. The word Christian was first used in Acts eleven twenty six when they were first called Christians in Antioch. Before that, they, what was a Christian called? Well, they were called disciples. They were called believers. They were called the Lord's disciples. And they were called followers of the way. Jesus being the way. So that's how Christians were known before Acts eleven twenty six 26. Antioch, when they first called Christians... At Antioch, first time the word Christians ever used in the Bible, they were first called Christians. Then we go to Acts 26, 28, where if you remember, Paul was talking to Agrippa. And Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. So sometime between Acts eleven twenty six at Antioch and 26, 28 of Acts with Agrippa, Sometime through there, the name Christian became a popular term for followers of Jesus because Agrippa knew it. So between 11 and 26 of chapter, chapters of, of Acts, the name Christian became the most popular term for following Jesus. So those are twice it's mentioned in the Bible. Now here's a third time right here. Paul, Peter uses it here. The idea that some are suffering because they are identified as Christians. That shows that the name by now has become widely popular for followers of Christ. Christians. Now the wording that he uses there is interesting. The word Christ, obviously we know that. But the other word that he adds with that, uh, the word ignos is a Latin phrase meaning partisan follower so the word christian i've heard my whole life means little christ not always here it means it doesn't mean little christ it means you're identified as a christ party so you're identified among those people who claim jesus as their savior so the word christian by now has become popular and peter uses it for the third, third time in the bible if anyone is, suffers as a Christian, he says, let him not be ashamed. 
Now think about Peter. Peter knew shame. You remember that courtyard incident? You remember Jesus is being arrested and he forsook Jesus and fled. And his trial's going on over here. And Peter wants to see what happens. But he keeps his distance and he warms his hand by the fire. And you remember the story, warming his hands. And they say, oh, you were with him. No, no, no. And he denied three times. You remember that? And he, and he was ashamed and went out and wept bitterly. He, he knows shame. And here he's saying, there's shame in what I did. But whenever you stand up for Jesus and you're persecuted for it, no shame in that, folks. You stand up for Christ. He learned his lesson. Stop feeling ashamed. And he urged his followers, don't you be ashamed. Because whenever you stand up for Christ, which I didn't stand up for Christ. He, he, I didn't, Peter says. I denied. Kept my distance. Had a chance to stand up. And I didn't. And I was shameful for it. But whenever you do stand up, don't be ashamed. Stand up for that name, unashamed, because the God will glorify you for it. Something tells me that if Peter had to go back and redo it again, the campfire would have never happened. But it did. He is forgiven, and he urges us to be different. Now look at verses 17 through 18, letter D on your outline, judgment beginning at the household of God. Verse 17. For it is time, he says, for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, that we, uh, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely, scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, in the next two verses, 17 and 18, Peter now compares our suffering with the suffering uh, that unbelievers will experience. So think about that. Now he goes from persecution. You're, you're going to suffer for Christ's sake. But he says, just remember this. Christians will suffer now on earth. But unbelievers will suffer as well. We suffer now. They suffer the judgment. We have our fire here. They have their fire there. So he says, so therefore judgment should begin at our house. All through the Bible you notice that God deals with his people first. Then he goes to the lost. Have you noticed that? Notice in the Old Testament. He'll deal with his people first. You ever have your... Uh, your uh, parent get on to you growing up and maybe punish you growing up and well I didn't do any worse than they did and they say no but you're my child they're not you know your parents say that mine said that and so God dealt in the Old Testament with his people first and he deals with us first judgment begins here in order for our nation to be healed, and we pray for healing of our nation all the time, don't we? 2 Chronicles 7.14 says God's people have to do something first. Not the lost. God's people do. Humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from our wicked ways. If my people will do that, then I'll heal the land. So we're expecting lost people to get right so the land will be healed. And God says, no, my people first. So He's always dealt with His people first. And here, Peter tells us, judgment begins here, God's house. 
Listen to what Spurgeon said about that. Spurgeon said, quote, It is right for judgment to begin at the house of God. There's equity in it. For Christians profess to be better than other people. They ought to be. People, Christians say they are regenerate. They ought to be regenerate. They say they're a holy people separate unto Christ. They should be a holy people separate unto Christ. Judgment should begin here. It's expected. So, is our suffering from God punishment? No. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever say you're being persecuted by the outside world as punishment. Jesus has already taken our punishment. Suffering is not punishment. Our suffering is a part of the opening scene of God's final act of God's drama as the world winds down. What is scene one, act one of the end times? Suffering of Christians. You saw that in Revelation. We studied it together. Now, some interpreters of Revelation say, well, Christians aren't going to suffer in the tribulation. That's very popular because who wants to suffer? And I hear a lot of interpretations out there. Oh, we're not going through, we're not, Christians not go through the tribulation. We won't suffer. But if you turn to the final act of God's drama, there are Christians suffering. Suffering worldwide right now. We will suffer now, but the suffering of the ungodly will be more severe. And it will be worse. It helps us to see our suffering tonight as a part of the end time plan. Because it lets us know that our suffering tonight is, is not because God is not out of control. It's the assurance God is in control. And he knows exactly what's happening. Some people think that Peter is referring here to Malachi 3, 2 and 3. Where Malachi says, who can endure the day of his coming? He is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Purifying of silver to the sons of Levi. And they'll bring offerings of righteousness. It, probably not. He's probably not. Because Malachi seemed to be referring to a purifying judgment upon Israel. Peter seems to be writing about what Christians would experience now. Not necessarily as a purifying. And so it's probably not a reference to Malachi, even though you may read that about this passage. In verse 18, it's interesting because Peter talks about the intensity of the suffering Christians and unbelievers both suffer. Did you notice that verse 18 is offset like in poetry? Do you know why? Because it's a quote. Peter's quoting Proverbs eleven thirty-one. Since God rewards the righteous on earth, how much more will he punish the wicked as sinners? If God disciplines his own children, how much more severe will he deal with those who are not his children? And that's the point he's making. If this is what happens to God's children, what happens to God's enemies? It's even worse. So Peter is trying to give comfort about suffering by saying our sufferings are light 
compared with those that the ungodly will experience at the final judgment. Now look at verse 19 and we'll close. Letter E on your outline. God's sovereignty in suffering. Verse 19. Therefore, he closes his argument, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's kind of an odd verse. Let's talk about it for a moment. We'll close. Therefore, means he's closing, in view of all the reasons that I just gave you, we should respond to suffering by entrusting ourselves to God who created us, who loves us, and who will not forsake us. God is faithful. Therefore, keep on doing what's right. Keep on submitting to government rulers, he talked about. Keep on obeying masters, he talked about. Keep on submitting to your husbands, wives, he talked about that. Husbands, keep on loving your wives, he talked about that. All those things I told you to do, Peter said, all those good things, you keep doing good things rather than evil things. And if persecution comes on you because of it, praise God, because you're blessed. Tonight, we showed up in church without fear of someone meeting us at the door and grabbing us and hauling us off somewhere, abducting us. But if that day ever comes, you keep being just as faithful on Wednesday night as you are right now. And you keep standing up for Jesus just as much as you do right now. And you keep coming on Sunday just as much as you do right now. You keep doing good rather than doing evil and being ashamed. So that's what Peter was telling them. Now, whenever he wrote this, they probably thought, yeah, Peter, okay, all right, yeah, one day, one day. I'm sure it may happen one day. And little did they know, within a year, whoo, it hit. And who knows what, who knows in our day? You don't know. I don't either. But if you're prepared now for what may come later, you're much more likely to be faithful. So gird yourselves and be ready now. The word entrust is interesting. Therefore, according to God's will, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. The word entrust, there's a technical word. It, it was used for leaving money on deposit with a trusted friend, knowing they'll give it back to you when the time comes. So think about that. You can entrust your soul to God like you can trust money with a trusted friend. Because you know he's going to be faithful to you. The word entrust there is the exact same word Jesus used on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit or entrust my spirit. And Peter says the same thing here. Did he hear Jesus say that on the cross? Maybe. He was a short distance away. Your souls, does that mean just who we are on the inside, not our bodies? No, he meant the whole, the total person. Psychos is used, total person. But notice the word faithful creator. That's a rather odd name for God. The only time in the entire New Testament that God is called creator. He's called creator in the Old Testament. But he's not called creator in the New. But he is here. 
we are leaving our souls to a trusted place. And this designation would remind believers of God's love and power in the midst of trials so they would not doubt his ability or interest in their suffering. God sees what you're going through so you can trust your soul to him. Now let's recap. From this section, it appears suffering happens for four reasons. Number one, so you can identify with Jesus and share in his suffering. Number one. Number two, it demonstrates your character as a believer if you suffer. Number three, suffering is an opportunity for God to bless us. And number four, our suffering will glorify God. Now, hold on for a second. Pause just for a moment. Take the word suffering out of the equation. And tonight, if I were to tell you there is a way you can identify with Jesus and his sufferings, that your character would be stronger, you can glorify God, and God would 100% bless you, we'd all sign up for it, wouldn't we? Why I want all of those things? Oh, by the way, you get those through suffering. And I don't want that. But remember, if it comes to that, be faithful. Even the slight persecution, the subtle jabs we get today, be faithful in those. Don't get angry and mad, want to fire back and fire somebody because you were discriminated against. Just know that God blesses you. And it glorifies Him that you stand up for Him. And it's your way of sharing His sufferings. And it's your way of identifying with Him. And it's your way of demonstrating character. So just keep going. Keep doing good. Keep being faithful. And one of the most striking features of this section on suffering is the fact that God is sovereign. Nothing is out of his control. So if we go through suffering, it's because he wanted us to. It's not because he's out of control and somebody else is in control. God is sovereign. God's faithful. Even in the midst of the suffering of his own people. So, tonight, keep doing good regardless of what comes. Let's pray together. We'll close. Father, thank you tonight for your word Thank you for giving us this, Lord. We may never experience suffering to the degree that they did or others around the world. Or we may. God, we don't know. But I pray more than anything else, we will be just as faithful in suffering as we are now. God, help us to please you. Help us to glorify you. May your blessings rest upon us. Thank you for your people tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.